I invite you to turn in your Bibles or the red Bibles in the chairs around you to the book of Joshua. Uh, that's in the Old Testament and it's toward the first part of the Old Testament. If you'd like to follow along in those red Bibles, the passage we're going to be looking at is on page 182 and 183. We're continuing on in our summer thematic series. We, during the school year, are looking at books of the Bible, going through passage by passage. Uh, during the summer, we do something a little more thematic, although we're still anchored in the Scriptures. That is God's Word. It is the truth. It is our authority. And so we look to God's Word to teach us. This summer, we've been considering the seven deadly sins. And this day, we come to the sin of gluttony. And we're going to be reading, uh, focusing primarily on Joshua 7, verses 16, down through verse 26. But in order to give us a little bit of context, I'm going to begin reading the story in chapter 7, verse 2. Now, just a reminder, we're going to be picking this up. Uh, the people of God have come out of Egypt. They have wandered in the desert for a generation. And now God is bringing to pass the promise that He gave to them of bringing them into the promised land. They have crossed the Jordan into the promised land and they are beginning to take hold of the land. And the chapter before, they had an amazing victory over the city of Jericho. And we're going to be reading about their coming to another city now, the city of Ai. So follow along as I read from chapter 7 verse 2 through the end of the chapter. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled from the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads and Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will, we, and what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen and lied and put them among their belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in, in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. 
In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe and the tribe of Judah was taken and he brought near the clans of Judah and the clan of the Zerahites was taken and he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man and Zabdi was taken and he brought near his household man by man and Achan the son of Carmi son of Zabdi son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan my son. Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them and see They are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them before the Lord and Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. They brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, what? Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the valley of Achor. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we do every week, we come and ask for you to give us an understanding into your word. Something that was written so long ago in a place very far from where we are today. A scenario, events that seem so distant from us. So we pray for the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and our minds that you would take your word and impress it upon us. That we might see wonderful things from your word today. Show us your grace, show us the gospel, show us your mercy and love and faithfulness. Once again, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Toward the beginning of the story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's great story, uh, we read about one of the children in the story, Edmund, first making his way into Narnia. And as he makes his way into Narnia, he comes very quickly into contact with the wicked queen of Narnia. And she is wicked and wants to discern what's going on and wants to find out why Edmund is here and who he is and how he's connected and how this might be to her interest. And so she begins to engage with Edmund and she gives him something to drink that it said, we're told warms him and lends him uh, a sense of confidence in this wicked queen. But then she sees that he's hungry, that he doesn't have anything to eat. And this is what she does. 
The queen let another drop fall from her bottle onto the snow, and instantly there appeared a round box tied with green silk ribbon, which, when opened, turned out to contain several pounds of the best Turkish delight. Each piece was sweet and light to the very center, and Edmund had never tasted anything more delicious. He was quite warm now and very comfortable. While he was eating, the queen kept asking him questions. At first, Edmund tried to remember that it is rude to speak with one's mouth full, but he soon forgot about this and thought only of trying to shovel down as much Turkish delight as he could. And the more he ate, the more he wanted to eat. And he never asked himself why the queen was so inquisitive. She got him to tell her that he had one brother and two sisters, that one of his sisters had already been in Narnia and had met a fawn there, and that no one except himself and his brother and his sisters knew anything about Narnia. She seemed especially interested in the fact that there were four of them and kept on coming back to it. You are sure there are just four of you, she asked, two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve, neither more nor less. And Edmund, with his mouth full of Turkish delight, kept on saying, Yes, I told you that before, and forgetting to call her Your Majesty, but she didn't seem to mind. At last, the Turkish delight was all finished. Edmund was looking very hard at the empty box, wishing that she would ask him whether he would like some more. Probably the queen knew quite well what he was thinking, for she knew, though Edmund did not, that this was enchanted Turkish delight and that anyone who had once tasted it would want more and more of it and would even, if they were allowed, go on eating it till they killed themselves. I wonder if any of us know anything about that. Any of us who have things in our lives that are so precious to us, that mean so much to us, that are so satisfying to us, so warming of our souls, that we would be willing to go on and on indulging, even if it cost us our lives or our souls. We're continuing on in our study of the seven deadly sins today, and we are looking at this deadly sin of gluttony. Gluttony comes from a Latin word which means to gulp down. You can almost see Edmund gulping down the Turkish delight. It means to have an overindulgence or an excessive consumption, usually thought of as food or drink. Thomas Aquinas and some other medieval theologians described gluttony further, expanding the sense of the ways that we can sin in this way with food. They talked about gluttony as being as eating too hastily, either before it was time to eat or even while it's time to eat. They also talked of gluttony as eating and never being satisfied, always needing more and always needing for it to be better. They talked about gluttony as, be, as eating beyond what is enough 
to satisfy us. As eating with too much eagerness and excitement. There's a tendency for us, and I think rightly so, to think of gluttony as being evidenced in the life of someone who is significantly overweight or an alcoholic. And sometimes that's true. But it's not always the case. People can be overweight for lots of different reasons. So being overweight doesn't necessarily mean that that person is wrapped up in the sin of gluttony. And gluttony also is not just about food and drink. There are other ways that we can sin this deadly sin of gluttony, even if it doesn't involve food or drink. St. Augustine talked about it as an inordinate or a disordered desire for anything. An overindulging in something, an excessive craving for something other than the Lord. We can be gluttons about all kinds of different things. We can certainly be gluttons about food and alcohol, but we can be gluttons about work, about a spouse, about watching the television or Netflix, of being on Facebook, playing video games, and even things like success or recognition or sex. What is it in our lives? That we have an excessive, inordinate craving for, an overindulgence in, because there we will likely find the sin of gluttony. Henry Fairley, in his book on the seven deadly sins, adds to what gluttony is and does, expands it for us. He says several things about it. He says, as with all sins, gluttony makes us solitary. We place ourselves apart Even when we're at a table of sharing. Gluttony, he says, is wastefulness. He goes on and says, There is is in the sin of gluttony, the sin of ingratitude, particularly to God. And he goes on and says, Gluttony is a grievous sin as it induces us to find our contentment in the gratifying of our appetites. Gluttony not only involves a lack of self-control, that's obvious, but at its core, gluttony is selfish. It causes us to be wasteful, it fills us with ingratitude, and it enslaves us to our appetites. So today what I want us to do as we look here at the story from the Old Testament in Joshua chapter 7 is to consider the power of the sin of gluttony, to think about the process that gluttony takes as it unrolls in our life, and then to think about what are some things that we can do to lean against it, to fight against it. So before we jump into those uh, points today, we need to review a little bit about the story of Achan. I mentioned to you to begin with that back in Joshua chapter 3, Israel has crossed the Jordan into Canaan, into the promised land. And we read there in Joshua chapter 3 that as they did that, they set up a memorial to the Lord. They celebrated the first Passover in the promised land. And then they began to take, prepare to take over the land as the Lord had commanded them to do. And we come to chapter 6 of Joshua and we hear this famous story of the fall of the city of Jericho. It was 
an amazing display of the power of God over this city, uh, even a miraculous fall of that city for the people of God. But one thing I want you to note in chapter 6, that the people of God were told as they took control of that uh, Canaan city, Jericho, in chapter 6, verse 18, God specifically told the people, when you go into Jericho, do not take the possessions of the people that you are conquering. Those are devoted things. He had told them over and over again, as you move into Canaan, do not intermarry with the people there because they are not God followers. They will lead you astray. Do not uh, get wrapped up in their pagan religions. Do not take their possessions for yourself. Those are devoted and are not for you. Very explicitly in chapter 6, the people of God are told that with Jericho. So then we come to chapter 7. And the people of God are moving on from Jericho Jericho now to the city of Ai, another of the cities that they were to conquer. And so in good military fashion, they sent out some spies to check out the city. And the spies spent some time looking at it and investigating and figuring out what was going to be needed to take over the city. And they come back and they report to Joshua and the people. We don't need to send the entire army. All we need to do is to send about two or three thousand men because this is a small city with a few people and we will be able to conquer them very easily. There's no reason to burden our soldiers. Just send two or three thousand They can certainly do the job. So Joshua took the advice and so they sent out the men to conquer Ai and the unthinkable happened. We read that the people of God Israel was defeated and greatly so. 36 fatalities and they fled. They turned their backs and fled and they were routed. And we read that the hearts of the people melted as water. Joshua and the leaders were devastated. Israel was supposed to be invincible. They had the one true God on their side. And yet, he had allowed them to be defeated. Joshua and the leaders tore their clothes and put dust on their heads. And they fell before the ark of the Lord. And they poured out their grief to the Lord. Wondering what happened. And the Lord answered and said, Israel has greatly sinned. They didn't know it yet, but the sin of one man was resting on the entire nation of Israel. And that sin, we are told, was a breaking of the covenant relationship between God and His people. It's what caused the failure at Ai. And God said, I will no longer be with you and go with you into battle until this issue is resolved. So He outlined a process by which they could figure out who did it and told them that the punishment was to be severe. Death and cremation. We read in verses 16 and following that eventually Achan was discovered to be the one who had taken these items. And Joshua called Achan to confess his sins and tells him, interestingly, Achan, if you will repent and you will confess your sins, that will be an honor and a glory to the Lord. So Achan acknowledged his sin and told Joshua and the leaders and all of Israel that he had taken a Babylonian cloak 
and 200 shekels of silver and a gold bar weighing about 50 shekels. He had buried them in his tent into the ground and he told them where they were. So Joshua sent some soldiers to go get them. The items were retrieved and it was found out that what Achan had confessed was exactly the case. Achan and his family, his possessions, his livestock were all taken to a valley called Achor. That's partially a play on Achan's name, but it also means, Achor means trouble, the valley of trouble. And there they were all executed and then cremated. The fact that his family was involved, that was included in that, probably indicates that they were aware and maybe even complicit in what Achan had done. Then the Lord told them to pile up stones over the graves to serve as a monument, as a reminder, as a remembrance of what had happened in that place. And it's interesting that at the end of the chapter, we're told the Valley of Achor, the Valley of Trouble, was known because of that event. That's the background. That's the context of what's happened. Now, let's go deeper into this text to see the power that gluttony has. Achan knew what he was doing. We see in Joshua chapter 6 that there were, were in specific and explicit instructions given from Joshua to the people. And they knew the laws that they had as well, that they were not to be intermingling themselves with the people and the possessions that they were entering in to conquer. Achan knew it was wrong. That's why he hid the items in his tent. He knew there would be consequences if he was caught, but he was willing to do it anyway. That's what the sin of gluttony does. That's the power of the sin of gluttony. It causes us to want and to desire and to crave things so much that we will be willing to give in what we know is wrong and even if we know what the consequences will be, it's, it's, it's like the cravings and the desires overcome our sense of right and wrong and our fear, our godly fear, of potential consequences if we're caught. Now let's think about how that happens in our lives a little bit. We can think of the obvious ones, right? We overeat and we overdrink knowing what will happen, knowing that it's not healthy for us to do those things. But we do it anyway. But how about some more less obvious ones? Several pastors and commentators were helping me think about this this past week. When we have an excessive craving for success and achievement and recognition, we'll overwork. Knowing that it won't be good for our own health or for the sake of our families and our friends. When we have an excessive desire to be in a relationship with someone and, and even to have a spouse. And when that desire is excessive and inordinate, then we will be tempted and perhaps even give in to things that we know we shouldn't be doing morally with those people. 
or even going against the Lord's clear command that we are only to marry other Christians. It's not that we don't know those things. It's that the craving, the desire in the moment is greater to us than what we know is right and wrong and the potential consequences. When we crave and have an inordinate desire for our own independency and our own self-sufficiency and our own autonomy in this life, we will never make commitments, we'll never be accountable in ways that the Lord calls us to be accountable. When we have an excessive craving for the perfect church, if we're already in a church that we like, then when people show up that aren't like us, we'll do our best to cause them to go away. Or if we're looking for the perfect church, we'll never fully commit to it because it will never measure up in every way to what we think it should be. That's the power of gluttony. We, the, the wants, the desires, the cravings that are so excessive in our lives, that are inordinate in our lives, cause us to be willing to give in to what we know is wrong, even though we know what the consequences are. Aiken also shows us not only the power that gluttony has over us, but also the process that it takes in our lives, the, the, the way that it starts to unfold. And, and Aiken gives us a snapshot of how gluttony takes place, how the steps that he takes. We see that in verses 20 and 21. And Aiken answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Did you see the first step that he took? He says there in verse 21, I saw. As he's confessing what happened, he, he's showing us the first step in the process. He says, I saw. And, and that word, when we when we hear that word, we think, okay, he saw those beautiful things. He saw the beautiful silver. He saw the beautiful cloak. But the Hebrew word here for saw means much more than just that it caught his eye. It means to gaze at. To consider. To enjoy looking at. To gloat over. The, the, the sense here of what Achan is confessing is the very first step in his process is that he savored those forbidden treasures. And you can tell that that's what he was doing, that it wasn't just that it kind of the twinkle of the silver caught his eye and immediately he just kind of, without even thinking about it, started taking them. We know that that's not what happened because how did he know that it was a cloak from Shinar, from Babylon. How did he know that there were 200 shekels? Ever put 200 pennies on a table and just look at it and know that that's 200 pennies? How did he know that that gold bar weighed 50 shekels? This was something that he didn't just see. He was savoring. He was counting. He was looking at. He was considering. He was treasuring. That's the first step. Then what did he say that he did? In the middle of verse 21, he says, after he saw them, he coveted them. His, his look, his gazing at, 
his considering took the next step and he coveted. That word means to desire greatly, to desire passionately, to crave, to take pleasure in. After we see it, after we gaze on it, after we consider it, after we savor it, then desire and craving takes place. I have to have it. This is probably where the knowledge of what is right and wrong and the knowledge of what the consequences could be get pushed to the side. Something inside of us snaps and the desire, the craving drives us and overcomes us and we have to have it. What was the third step? He says at the end of verse 21, I saw, I coveted, I took. It means to lay hold of, to acquire, to seize it. Where the look, the gaze, the savoring turned into a desire, a craving, a coveting, it led him to seize those forbidden things. We selfishly take those things for ourselves. We have to have it. So we take it. Aiken lays out for us the process that gluttony can take. And it's something that I think probably if we will reflect on our lives and things that we are gluttonous about, that we can see that we fall into those steps. You may be able to think about even specific things that you are prone to be tempted to be gluttonous about. And maybe you can see that process and those steps happening. Maybe it takes a long time. The seeing and the savoring is over a long period of time. And then the coveting, your heart gets wrapped up in it over a period of time. And then the opportunity comes and you seize that thing after all kinds of planning and thinking about it. But maybe it happens much more quickly. Maybe the seeing of it and the coveting of it and the taking of it happens in a moment. But all of those steps seem to take place. So what can we do about it? The old Puritan language is, how do we lean against our besetting sins? Those sins that grab our hearts and are so hard to get rid of. And you can see the picture, right? Leaning in against our sin of gluttony. What are some things that we can do? Let's reflect on what Achan did and what Achan didn't do. And see what steps he took and didn't take. And see if we can learn from it. The first thing that we can do to lean against our gluttony is to watch what we're gazing on. Being careful what we spend time savoring, considering, thinking about. I think that involves a couple things. First of all, it means being thoughtful about what we're simply spending time thinking about. What are the things... That capture our imagination. Even good things. That if we are to meditate and to savor them in the wrong way. Even a good thing that can become a temptation to us in a wrong way. Watching what we gaze on also involves being careful about the situations and places that we put ourselves into. 
not putting ourselves into temptation, uh, tempting situations and scenarios. The, the, the more that we gaze on and consider things that we shouldn't be gazing on and considering and savoring in those ways, the more likely we're going to take the next step and then the next step. So let's think about that for an example. If we're tempted toward gluttony about having a relationship, particularly a romantic relationship with somebody else, then it means that we need to be careful about the books that we read and the movies and the TV shows that we're watching that fill us with an inordinate craving for some kind of relationship. It's not that the relationship is wrong. It's not that being in a relationship with someone that God has given to us is wrong. That's, those are good things. But as we savor those things and we desire and crave those things to the point that it causes us to go against God's word, that is the problem. What, what if we're tempted toward gluttony about alcohol? Well, we shouldn't be spending time walking around liquor stores. And, and maybe we shouldn't even have liquor in our homes. If we're tempted toward the sin of gluttony about our possessions, then we shouldn't be spending time looking at all the brand new models of cars that we wish we could have online or driving around the dealerships looking for the car that we might have someday in our future. We probably shouldn't be spending time walking around Shields looking at all the wonderful golf equipment that's out this year. Or the great fishing gear that we could buy. Or the wonderful clothes that we could have, whatever it might be. We shouldn't be spending time driving around in the neighborhoods that we wish we lived in, looking for the house that we wish we could buy at some point. If we're tempted toward the sin of gluttony about looking for the perfect job or the perfect spouse or the perfect church, then we need to be very careful about spending time gazing and thinking and savoring about the greener pastures somewhere else. The what ifs. Gluttony starts with our gaze, with our consideration, with our savoring things beyond what is right and good. So we need to be careful about what we gaze upon. But a second thing, and this is the most powerful of these four things that I have for you, is that we need to desire a more beautiful thing than the thing that we're gazing on. Thomas Chalmers was a 19th century Scottish pastor. And he wrote a little... Uh, paper, really, you can find it online, called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Not the explosive power, but the expulsive power of a new affection. And what he says in that article is profound. He talks about the fact that we have affections, we have desires, we have cravings. And the way that we can have those be honoring to the Lord and not in, in unhonoring ways is not just try to get rid of them. Because that will never work completely. Instead, what we must do is we must expel them with an even greater desire and craving that captures our heart. And he goes on to say, which I think is right, it's what the Bible teaches us, that that greater, that better, 
thing that we should savor and crave and desire in this life is nothing less than the Lord Himself. The Lord Himself must be so beautiful to us, so desiring for us, so much of what we want in our lives that nothing else can grab and grip our hearts in a way that only He can. It's what the author to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. We need to expel the weight and the sin that clings closely to us, the things that we are tempted to be gluttonous about, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's saying we need to lay aside the weight and the sin which clings to our hearts so closely and run instead with endurance the race that God has set before us. And the way we do that is to set our eyes on that which is more beautiful, which is to be a greater desire and craving for us in this life. And that is Jesus himself. Moses says something very similarly in his psalm, Psalm 90. He says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. How can we rejoice and be glad in the Lord all of our days? It is if God satisfies us with his steadfast love, fills us, makes us content, gives us a peace with the Lord's steadfast covenant love. So how do we grow in our desire, our craving, if you will, for God's covenant steadfast love for the Lord Himself? It's not a switch that we can flip. It's not some secret formula. It's something that takes time. It's something that God gives us to be involved in over a long period of time. It is making use of the tools that God has given to us, the means of grace, His Word, prayer, the sacraments, worship with God's people, the fellowship we have with brothers and sisters in Christ. It is making use of these wonderful tools that God has given to us in a steady, consistent way over time. Where we'll see slow progression, where our hearts will crave Him more and more. It will enable us to expel the things that we should not be craving as much as we do. There's a third thing here that we need to do to lean against our gluttony, and that is to repent. I don't want us to read over this fact that sometimes it's easy to read over in verse 20. Achan was confronted by Joshua. And he repented. He owned up to his sin. He acknowledged what he had done. Now granted, it was after he got caught. It would have been better yet if it had been before he had been caught. It would have saved the lives of at least 36 Israel soldiers. But he repented. And notice that it didn't mean that there weren't any consequences, even significant consequences. 
But here's what I want you to reflect on this morning, and that is that believing the Lord, repenting of our sin, turning back to the Lord, and even receiving potential consequences because of our sin is always better than not repenting. Repentance is one way that God calls us to lean against our sin of gluttony. And then lastly, one of the ways that we can lean against our gluttony is to remind ourselves that there is always hope. There was an execution that took place in this story. There was a memorial established. And we're told that all of that took place in the Valley of Achor. Again, it's a play on Achan's name, but it also literally means the Valley of Trouble. And we're told at the end of chapter 7 that that is a place that even to the day that this was being written was a place that was known as to what happened in that place. Hundreds of years later, Isaiah, the prophet, would refer to it. And years later, Hosea, the prophet, would refer to it. And it's Hosea's words that I want you to listen to as he references it. Hosea was writing to the people of God. And God was calling them to repentance because of their unfaithfulness to him. Like an unfaithful wife to a husband, the people of God were unfaithful to God himself. And Hosea is talking to them about their unfaithfulness. He's calling them to recognize how they've been unfaithful, to repent and to turn to the Lord. And then Hosea talks about the mercy and grace of God on his people. And this is what he writes. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards. And listen. And I will make the valley of Achor, a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as in, at the time when she came out from the land of Egypt. I will betroth you to me forever, says the Lord. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord and I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people you are my people and he shall say you are my God. Isn't it interesting that Hosea in the midst of reminding the people of God of the promises and the grace and the mercy of God goes back to the valley of Achor and says, the valley of Achor will become a door of hope for you. If you're here this morning and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're one of God's children, a beloved son and daughter of the Lord God Almighty. And you struggle with the sin of gluttony. Don't forget there is always hope. Turn back to the Lord. Repent of your sin and hear His words of grace and mercy. Even your valley of trouble. He will turn into a door of hope. With His goodness and grace and mercy and love to you. Let's pray together.
Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to believe what your word says. Both about the destruction that our sin can cause. But also, Father, in the wonder of your grace and mercy to us through Christ. As we come now to your table, I pray, Father, feed us spiritually. Remind us of the gospel once again, the extent that you're willing to go to make us your children. And I pray, Father, that that would send us out of here with great hope and joy that we might live for you this week ahead. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.